eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, why do some women's products cost more than men's for the same thing? Then the fascinating history of personal transportation, getting people from point A to point B in a speedy fashion. In fact, people were worried about the effects of speed. They thought, well, our brains stop working. And so there are these experiments that are done in the 1830s where, you know, they put passengers on trains and they make them do things like crossword puzzles to see if their brains still work properly <laughs> at the unheard of speed of 35 miles per hour. Also, what does a burglar look like? Would you know one if you saw one? And getting the courage to speak up, say your piece and be heard. It's important. Think of all the opportunities that are lost all the great ideas that never are said and never worked on and never come to fruition because somebody is reluctant to speak up. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now. And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Have you heard of the pink tax? It's where women pay more than men for what appears to be the same product. In a survey of drugstore products like shampoo, shaving cream, razor blades, and deodorant, many products seemed identical, but they had very different prices. And the only difference was that one product was for women and the other was for men. And almost always, the women's products were more expensive. Sometimes a lot more expensive. But it's not just personal care items. A few years ago, the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs 
analyzed almost 800 items in 35 product categories, and they found that the items for female consumers cost more than the products for men in 30 of those 35 categories. For example, in the category of toys and accessories, the same toys for girls were 7% more than the same toys for boys. In children's clothing, girls' clothes were 4% more than boys'. In adult clothing, women's clothes were overall 8% more than men's. And in that category of personal care items, women's products were 13% more than men's for the same product. Compare for yourself the next time you're at the store, and if you're a woman, you may find yourself buying men's razors and shaving cream and deodorant to avoid the pink tax. And that is something you should know. There's a pretty good chance when you got up this morning, part of your plan was to go somewhere else. Because that's what humans do. We like to move. Sometimes we have to move to go to work or go to the store. Or we go out for fun or go on vacation. We move around a lot. It wasn't always that way. I mean, if it weren't for the wheel, you wouldn't go many places. And we've come a long way since the invention of the wheel. And so, how will we get to places in the future? The evolution of personal transportation is really interesting and something Tom Standage has studied. Tom is deputy editor of The Economist. He's author of six previous books, and his latest is called A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. Hey, Tom, welcome. Great to be here. So, this topic of transportation... It's really one of those topics that dominates our lives, and yet we don't think about it too much. We want to go somewhere, we just hop in a car, get on a bike, go on a train, and off we go. It's just part of our lives. We don't really think much about how we got here. So why do you think it's important that we understand this now? What I was particularly struck by, um, reading about the history of transport and the history of cars, and I've always been really into cars, was the familiarity and the similarity um, of the 1890s to the situation that we have today. So essentially, in the 1890s, in the big, fast-expanding cities of the Western world, places like London and New York, it was becoming apparent that the dominant means of urban transport, which was based around horses, uh, was becoming unsustainable and that things had to change. But no one was quite sure what would come next. And I think we're in a similar position today. We've recognized that cars you know, are not sustainable environmentally and we've you know, given half of the area of most cities over to roads and parking and space for cars. And you know, there's a growing recognition that we can't go on this way. So we've got to do something different, but it's not quite clear what. So I would imagine that as you look at the timeline of transportation, the point at which the wheel shows up has to be like the big thing. That I mean, because without the wheel, not much is going to change. So is that the case? Well, we think of the wheel as a sort of, you know, the greatest invention in history, it's quite often called, um, because we are surrounded by wheeled vehicles. We use them of one kind or another, um, you know, probably every day. And whether it's a train or a bike or a car, you know, we're used to a world of wheels. And this is actually quite recent. Although the wheel was invented more than 5,000 years ago, it was invented about 35, 3600 BCE, most people didn't get to go on wheeled vehicles. They were very, very big. They were very expensive. 
um, and they weren't sort of personal transport devices. The first ones were probably built to move ore, um, copper ore, around in copper mines. So it looks as though the first wheels er arose in Eastern Europe uh, in a region called the Carpathian Mountains. And the idea of the wheel does spread quite quickly. It spreads to Mesopotamia. So what's modern-day Iraq. But even in Mesopotamia, it was just sort of the, the kings who would go on these wheeled vehicles that were sort of, you know, for ceremonial purposes. Uh, they might use them as observation platforms in battle. But wheeled vehicles in those days, they had these big, big, thick, heavy wheels. They, you couldn't steer them. They were very slow moving. And so, um, you know, it wasn't something that most people would, would ever use as a means of transport. Most people would still have to walk. And, um, and in fact, most people have walked you know, for most of history. Um, and it's only very very recently that wheeled vehicles have proliferated and um and we've come to the idea that sort of wheels are an obvious thing in retrospect but that hasn't always been the case and my favorite example of this is the egyptians the egyptians managed to build the pyramids entirely without using wheels and it's only when the people to the north of them the hittites invent the war chariot and start conquering big chunks of the uh, the middle east that the egyptians suddenly wake up and go okay we gotta we gotta find out about about wheels it surprises me like when when the wheel showed up, light bulbs didn't go off everywhere like, hey, my God, this is fabulous. We can, but it didn't. It, it, it didn't catch on for the longest time. And I guess partly because of the way wheels were made. But, but you would think that somebody would have gone, hey, wait a minute. Well, it was very complicated to make the first, the first wheels of the first vehicles. I mean, you needed to, you know, basically chop up pieces of wood. And in these days, people didn't have tools because you had to make tools out of metal and they were only just figuring out how to make, you know, stuff out of metal. If you, if you remember the um, opening sequence of the Flintstones, the wheels in the Flintstones, and the idea that a lot of people have about the origin of the wheels is that someone sawed a slice off a log and that'll give you a wheel, right? Only the problem is the saw isn't invented until about 2000 years after the wheel because it's much harder to make a saw. Um, so early wheels were not made by chopping slices off logs. They were made by um, splitting logs and sticking them together in planks and this is all complicated stuff and then building a whole vehicle around them you know this is something that would take people a long time so yeah when people saw wheels they'd go wow that's really awesome but they weren't in a position to make their own wheels or have their own wheels well in addition to the wheel being a game changer in terms of transportation i would imagine the horse has got to be up there pretty close to the top of the list as well Again, the horse kind of shows up a bit later than you might think. Um, so the first wheeled vehicles that are pulled by animals are pulled by oxen. And the Mesopotamian vehicles that we see are pulled by these, I'm not even, they're called onagers. They're sort of like, a bit like donkeys, um, but they're smaller. And uh, and then the war chariot uh, is, you know, they start to pull those using, using horses. Um, and that means that they can suddenly go a lot faster. And so war chariots are interesting. They've got two wheels, so you can steer them um, easily because you just steer the horse basically you don't have this problem with a four-wheeled vehicle where you have to be able to turn some of the wheels sideways um, and war chariots also had spoked wheels so they were much much lighter but that also meant they were really complicated to make and if you look in Tutankhamun's tomb he was buried with a chariot very very lightweight 35 kilograms big spoked wheels it's like the Ferrari of its day I mean it would have required skilled artisans a very long time to build that vehicle it would have been incredibly expensive and this is why war chariots became you know associated with 
people of high status, this idea that you are what you drive, the faster your vehicle, the more high status that you are. But then the war chariot fell out of favour because horses were bred to be large enough that they could carry warriors. And obviously you can take a horse places you can't take a chariot. And so, um, so then the war chariot kind of became obsolete and people switched to having cavalry um, and the wheel sort of, you know, fell from favour again. It's sort of a bumpy ride. One minute people are really into wheels and the next minute they're not. And for the most part, even when people are into them, most people can't afford to use them. And so what was the next big innovation that moved personal transportation forward? What was the next big thing? Well, weirdly, it's it's actually gunpowder weapons because gunpowder weapons, so guns and cannons and things like that, meant that knights on horseback suddenly looked really out of date and old-fashioned and obsolete. And at that point, the idea that men shouldn't be going on wheeled vehicles um, gets overturned because in particular, you can mount cannons. So this is what some countries started to do. You mount cannons on wheeled vehicles and then you can shoot at knights. So suddenly the knights look old fashioned and you want to be the guy on the, on the wheeled vehicle with the cannon. And this coincides with the rise of a new vehicle called the coach, which is basically a fast carriage, a four wheeled carriage. Uh, so it's a fast, open, wheeled vehicle. And this originates in Eastern Europe, and um, it spreads all over Europe. And the idea that if you're a man, it's no longer cool to be riding around on a horse. It's now cool to be riding in a, in a coach with, you know, pulled by two or four horses as fast as you can. And again, speed is, you know, it's a, it's a way of showing off. It's a way of demonstrating your status and your wealth and so on. So this idea that you are what you drive. So suddenly wheels are cool again, and, uh, and they've been cool ever since. When I think about the 1800s, I think of stagecoaches and railroads, steam engines, and that, that was how people would get around. Yeah, stagecoaches were surprisingly slow. I mean, they didn't go much faster than walking. Um, it was about four or five miles an hour, so it's about the same as walking. And the main thing was you didn't get rained on and you could take luggage. But yeah, trains are completely different because they go so much faster. In fact, people were worried about the effects of speed. They thought, you know, will our, will our brains stop working? And so there, there are these experiments that are done in the 1830s where, you know, they put passengers on trains and they make them do things like crossword puzzles to see if their brains still work possibly, <laughs> you know, still work properly at the unheard of speed of 35 miles per hour you know it's that kind of thing but yes it is incredible because when you have a, a rail link between two cities in effect you've moved those cities so that they're very close together and they're closer to each other than they are to other cities that may be geographically closer but you know don't have rail links and so you start to get all sorts of economic effects you get cities like chicago where the economy is able to go in new directions because it's got these railroad links to um to other places so that really is a game changer and it's the first time that you know people can travel faster than you can on a on a galloping horse and then what happened? Is that pretty much it until the car? Or were there, were there other things that were uh, innovations that maybe we don't know about? Well, the other one uh, that, that, you know, it seems obvious in retrospect, but there are, the other big innovation of the, uh, of the first half of the 1800s is the bicycle. The first bicycles are made um, about 18... 15, 18, 16. Um, and they are like kids' bikes, balance bikes. They don't have pedals. Um, they're made of wood and you kind of sit on it and then you kind of push it along using your legs. And, you know, that idea doesn't really catch on. Um, but, you know, gradually people refine it. They make the wheels out of metal. They add pedals. They add brakes. Uh, they start off with the penny farthing, you know, the huge front wheel and the tiny back wheel. And then they realize if you make the two wheels the same size and use a chain, then actually that's much more efficient. By the 1880s, we get to what looks like a modern bicycle and these are also revolutionary because they're a personal transport device 
rather like a horse, but much, much cheaper. You don't have to feed it. You don't have to look after it. And this means that the ability to have a, a vehicle, you can, you know, give, you can visit the next town. You've got the freedom to travel when you want, but you don't have to be rich enough to own a horse. That's suddenly available to a, a much larger number of people. And so, you know, if you look at the um, the 1880s, 1890s, the sort of golden age of the bicycle, there's this bicycle mania, and it is hailed as a great sort of leveler of, um, you know, social inequality, women can travel more easily, uh, and so on. And so that is also a very, very radical shift in transport in its own way. Except when it rains or snows. Well, quite. So this is when people start asking themselves, is there a way we could have something that could go on existing roads like a horse or a horse, you know, and, and a coach, a horse-drawn carriage that could go as fast as a train and have a roof like a, like you do on a, on a train carriage, but could also be as personal as a bicycle? Of course, that is what the automobile promises. And so when people start to use these new internal combustion engines that have just been invented and fit them either onto existing carriages or build new vehicles around them, um, suddenly people look at them and go, wow, that, now that is cool, because it's combining the best of all of these previous modes of transport. Which is what I want to talk about next, because the car is such a game changer. And, you know, that this is where we are in this uh, history of motion. And I want to talk more about that in a moment. Tom Standage is my guest. The name of his book is A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that, that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet. NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So, if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. A free flight, room upgrades, who knows? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just... You know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin-D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So, Tom, before we talk about the car, as you say, the bicycle was a, was a big deal and we maybe tend not to think of it as a big deal, because by today's standards, 
a bicycle is more of a kid's mode of transportation, you know, almost a toy in many ways. I mean, a lot of people, grown-ups, ride bicycles. I get that. But at the time, when they first came out and people really started riding them, it wasn't just a kid's, like, toy or means of transportation. Everybody was using them. It was actually particularly popular among young adults because um, it was a sort of dating app of its day. Um, people would join bike clubs to meet members of the opposite sex. And, and so it really was um, you know, a game changer socially, but it also literally paved the way for the car because cyclists campaigned for better roads, smoother roads, paved roads. They also campaigned for the right to take this newfangled vehicle into places that you know previously had been reserved for horse-drawn carriages. So places like Central Park, where you allowed to take a a new vehicle into Central Park, well, eventually they run. They won the right to do that too. And what that meant was by the time the automobile was invented, that there were smooth roads starting to appear. And it was also the precedent set that you could take a new vehicle um, into these places that were previously reserved for horse-drawn traffic. Um, and so in that sense, the bike really did prepare the way for the car. And also, if you look at the first car made by Carl Benz, the Motorwagen in 1886, it looks much more like a bicycle than anything else. It's basically a tricycle. It's got enormous great you know, spoked wheels. It, he basically built it out of bike parts around an internal combustion engine. So the, the, the bike is in many ways the, uh, the father of the car. I never would think that. You would think that that was just a, di a whole different set of thinking to, to come up with the car. But, but when you explain it that way, it makes perfect sense that here's this kind of cool thing people are pedaling around. Let's put a motor on it and, and make it more sophisticated. That's pretty exactly. cool. Exactly. And in fact, an internal combustion engine is put on a bicycle before, so the year before, Benz builds the motorwagen. Someone else has attached a, uh, an internal, a small internal combustion engine to a bicycle. So actually the motorbike comes before the car and it is the intermediate step between the bicycle um, and the car. So yes, that's all That's all exactly the way it was. Also, these first cars, I mean, we call them cars, the word car doesn't become popular until the 20th century, but these first cars didn't have roofs, they didn't have windows, you know, they were outdoor, you had to dress up <laughs> to go in them. Um, and the idea of having things like windows that close and locking doors, that all comes much later. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, they are much more like bicycles in that sense, you are really exposed to the elements. You know, what's interesting is that as, as the Time progresses and the new innovations come. The old ones kind of fall away. I mean, we still have horses, but people don't, you know, ride them to work too much anymore. I mean, it's it's a more of a recreational thing, I think. But from the bicycle, the motorbike, and the car, people still use all of them. Well, this is because horses are expensive, right? I mean, they're they're really really expensive, and it's a rich person's hobby to ride horses now. But it was a rich person's, you know, a privilege to have horses, and you have to have stables, and then of course they were producing all this horse manure, which takes me back to where I started because that was a real real problem. And the one of the reasons that you know people were so enthusiastic about cars is that they promised to get rid of this problem of horse manure that was literally piling up in cities. You know, had to be swept up from the streets every day. They tried selling it. To farmers but eventually there was so much of it no one wanted to buy it um and so you have this you have this big problem and the car seems to solve all the problems right it's going to get rid of the pollution it's going to get rid of the traffic because a car takes up as a horseless carriage as it's first called takes up half the amount of space as a horse and a carriage because you've only got one of them so the idea was that was going to fix all the traffic problems and thomas edison makes this prediction right at the beginning of the 20th century that downtown new york manhattan is going to look like a ghost town because the um the automobile is going to reduce traffic so much and then it's also 
also going to be much quieter because um, the uh, you're not going to get the steel ribbed wheels going across the cobblestones. Automobiles have rubber tyres, so they're much quieter. And they're also going to be safer. There's going to be no more accidents because a horse can be scared by a loud noise, but a, uh, an engine can't be scared. And so road deaths were going to plummet as well. And of course, all of these things turned out to be wrong. So tell the story about traffic lights, how red came to mean stop and green came to mean go. How did that all come about? Well, red originally means stop because a lighthouse was being built um, on the English coast and it was near to another lighthouse. And the problem was that, you know, sea captains were going to get the two lighthouses muddled up. So one of them had to, the second one had to have a new colour. So um, Stevenson, the engineer who was building it, did a whole load of experiments to see which colour you could get light. Um, if, you, if you put coloured glass in front of a light, which colour, you know, reduced the brightness of the of the lighthouse the least. And um the light would travel the furthest and we now know that it's red because red has the longest wavelength so that's that's why um you know red is the answer but he came up with red and so red became um associated with the warning for that lighthouse and then ships started carrying um red lights uh, on one side and white lights on the other side for um as warning lights at sea and that way if you saw another ship approaching um you would pass on the side of the white light not the red light um and so white comes to be associated with go and red with stop. And then this is adopted by railway companies in the 19th century, starting in England. Uh, and they use green to mean caution. But there's a problem with this. When red means stop and green means caution and white means go, if you see another light and you're you know, on a train and you're driving the train, you see a white light in the distance that's actually not a railway signal at all it's just someone's house or something like that you may misinterpret it as a as a go light and if you see a red light or a green light where the the filter the glass filter in front of it has fallen off it becomes a white light in other words it means go when it should mean stop or caution and this led to rail accidents because if the filter falls off people are going to misread the signal so right around 1900 the colors are swapped and green is used to mean go and white is used to mean caution. And that way, if a filter falls off either of the you know, red or the green lights, it defaults to caution rather than defaulting to go, which is much safer. And so those colors are then adopted when street lights, electric, um, sorry, when electric traffic signals are introduced, those colors are then, um, are then introduced. So now we have the car. We've had the car for a long time. It has gotten better and better, but but so what's next? Is there going to be another big thing? Are we going to have flying cars? Or what's the next big thing? I think we are at an inflection point. If you look at what's happened in the last 15 years, there's been enormous innovation. Uh, we've had things like ride hailing, so Uber and Lyft and um, DD, the equivalent in China. We've also had things like, uh, you know, these bike rental schemes that you have in many cities now where you have, you know, docks. Uh, and also dockless bike rental schemes, and then the e-scooters and, and so on and so on and so on. The thing that's really changed all of this um, and changed the sort of outlook, I think, for transport is the smartphone. The smartphone itself, obviously, you know, is not a means of transport. I can't climb it onto my smartphone and fly around. But in effect, I can because it makes public transport in my city much more usable. I can look up when the next bus or the next train is going to come. I can see the quickest way to get across town by using you know a variety of means of transport. I can hail a car using an app, a ride hailing app. I can unlock a bicycle or a scooter using it. Um, so you can basically, in a way that's never been possible before, combine all of these other kinds of transport to make something that is, you know, in many ways, 
preferable to owning a car in a busy city. And the general trend is that car ownership is becoming more and more expensive and more and more inconvenient. Young people are less likely to learn to drive. And at the same time, the alternatives to car ownership are becoming easier to use and more convenient because the smartphone stitches them all together. So I call this the internet of motion. And in, it's, it's essentially this combination, like the internet's a network of networks. This is a combination of different transport networks tied together by the phone. So that's sort of what I think is coming next. And over time, owning a car is going to make less sense for a growing number of people who live in cities. And I think the overall number of cars you know, that people own is going to go down. And what's your sense about the self-driving car? Well, I think the self-driving car and the flying car could fit into my internet of motion quite easily um, if we can get them to work and if they're safe. I've been in self-driving cars. I've been following the field very closely. The problem is you can make a self-driving car that kind of can cope in traffic with other people, with other vehicles, uh, and sort of it can manage 95, 97% of the time. It's that last, that last five, that last 3% that's really, really difficult because cars have to deal, you know, drivers have to deal with very unpredictable environments. And so this is why the self-driving cars are tested in very predictable environments like Phoenix, Arizona, where you've got a grid system where it never snows, um, where there's not, you know, there aren't any, aren't any cyclists on the road to speak of, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's the real challenge, getting, getting to the point where you really can put these on these things on the road without endangering other people. Well, the story of motion, this history that you tell is so interesting, makes you really want to hear what's in the next chapters to come. Tom Standage has been my guest. He's deputy editor of The Economist, and he is author of the book, A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. And there's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Mike. It's been great fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. How many times have you been in a situation where you thought about saying something to someone or you wanted to say something or you felt you really should speak up and say something, but you didn't? Then maybe later, you wish you had. There are times when you really should speak up. So how do you do it, courageously and purposefully, rather than sit back and say, eh, what's the point? That's what Mary Nestor is here to talk about. Mary is a communications expert and award-winning speaker, business consultant, and author of the book, Say It Now, Say It Right, How to Handle Tough and Tender Conversations. Hi, Mary. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. So I've been in that situation. I think everybody's been in that situation where you think you should probably say something, but you think, yeah, but what's the point? It's not worth it. It's just going to cause trouble. So you don't. 
And I imagine sometimes it isn't worth it. It probably will just cause trouble. So, so how do you know when you should speak up and when you shouldn't speak up? Excellent, excellent questions. It's true. There are some times when you don't have to say something. And that's the times when you can be silent. But in many cases, people are not even aware of some of the things they're doing. And I'll give you an example. I gave a presentation early on in my career. And I, it was very well received. And afterwards, I went into the ladies' room and just to freshen up. And I noticed that I had a big piece of broccoli stuck in my front tooth. And I went back to my assistant and I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so embarrassed that I had this in my tooth. She said, oh, I know it. And I said to her, you knew it and you didn't tell me. And she said, oh, I was so embarrassed. I didn't, I didn't want to say anything that was negative to you. Now, the time for her to say it now was before I gave my presentation. And so many people are aware, not aware of the fact that they have broccoli in their teeth. They're doing something or they're coming across in a way that they're not even aware of themselves and you don't tell them. That's really not being very nice. Think about this. If there's something that is going on, say in an office, you've got uh, one person who is always interrupts everybody or is very hard to work with. Well, everybody else knows that, but that person may not know it at all. Who are you hurting? You're hurting the person that you're not telling because if they were aware of it, then they could do something about it. Yeah, but I've been in situations where, you know, there are people who, if, if they had broccoli in their teeth, I would have no trouble telling them, hey, you've got broccoli in your teeth. You might want to move that. And that's probably most people. But there's always those people who, I don't know, they're a little volatile. You, you don't know what kind of response you're going to get. And I figure, well, then what's the point? You know, I don't feel safe in their response. So I just don't say anything. And you're very, you're right. You can't predict the uh, responses you're going to get because there's a lot of different responses. They could say, oh, this is great. Thank you so much. Or they could say, who do you think you are? And that is something that you can't control. The person who is really going to benefit in that kind of a situation is you. Because think about it. If you have a situation with a person, a relationship uh, problem, or maybe a, a problem at work, and you let it go, and you let it go, and you let it go, who is it really bothering? The other person may not even be aware of it. But every day, you have to go into that situation, and you, you are in, there, there's a turmoil. There is a stress going on. And so I, what I say is to, to find your voice and take a risk to, to speak your truth. This is how I'm feeling. This is the situation as, as I see it. And this is what I think, you know, I would like you to do, or this is the way we should approach things from now on. And after you have that conversation, you're absolutely right. You can't control what the other person is going to do, but think of how you're going to feel. The stress, you don't have to confront that situation anymore. What about the, the situation where you've, not said anything for a long time and now you've decided to say something and there's so much there's so much <laughs> anger and resentment behind it you've got to be really careful what you say because it may all come out in a in a ton of bricks right <laughs> absolutely and you know say it say it now doesn't mean say it immediately 
off the top of your head when you're really angry. What, what, if you're angry, that is not the time to talk to anybody and not to bring up a situation. So let yourself cool down a little bit. And you have to look at it also from your perspective. You know, criticism, nobody likes criticism. And we tried to dress it up and call it uh, constructive criticism or constructive feedback and all those things. But nobody likes to be criticized. But I can come and I can speak from my perspective about something. And, and the, the anger builds up, again, because we are reluctant or afraid to approach a situation or a certain person. So I would say, cool down before you blurt something out and really think about it. Think about how you're going to approach that person and the situation. One of the things that I have found that's very, very helpful when you have a situation like that is to think of if you have something that you can say that's positive first. All right. I had a situation one time when I was, and it wasn't an angry situation, but the a friend of mine gave a presentation and I, I listened to it and it was wonderful, brilliant, but she kept speaking very, very soft. And she said a lot of ahs and ums. And after the presentation, I thought, well, you know, she's going to give it tomorrow to a big group of donors. And I had some, I have a suggestion. So what I did is I went up to her and I said, you know, I really enjoyed your, your presentation. There's so much content. It's just so, this information is so important. I observed something while I was listening to you and I would like to share it with you. Would you mind if I did that? So I, what the technique is to give the person the opportunity to give permission for you to speak. And I, I have to say that if I've used that technique before, I've never heard the word no. She said, sure. And so I went on and explained what I saw. And again, I said, you know, it was a great presentation. Said I had trouble hearing you in some places when you spoke very softly. How about trying to speak loudly and do that in a consistent manner. And she said, great. Thank you so much. Yeah, so that's well, one way of approaching someone who you think might be angry because once they've given you permission to speak, then you have the floor. Well, but something that you did that I think is really important is you, you said, can I tell you what I observed rather than say, can I tell you what I think you should do? Absolutely. That's a big difference yes. because uh, I'm not sure I want to hear what you think I should do, but I might be interested in hearing what you observe. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what, that's what I call speaking your truth. I can always, and you can always speak your truth because this is how, this is how I see the world. This is how I see the relationship. This is how I see uh, the situation. But when you start using the word you, and you're absolutely right, Mike, if you were you, this is what you should do. I could have said, well, you know what you ought to do? You ought to not speak so soft all the time. And I think you ought to speak up. What a different message that is. And yet I think that's the message most people give when they, when they do give feedback is they, they say this is in, either in the exact words or the message is, this is what I think you should do. Yes. Yeah. Since you've been doing this a while and you talk to a lot of people who theoretically, hopefully, try your, your process out, how often does it go off the rails versus how often is it not the disaster people think it's going to be? <laughs> 
You know, it always it depends on the situation. I always applaud anyone who will try it out. Most of the time, I have found it has gone very well. I had someone talk to me just recently, and she said, "You know, I have used the techniques, and I am found I'm speaking up more to with my family. I am, and it's not." that it's a, a difficult situation. I just feel more comfortable speaking my truth. I feel more comfortable saying what I think and not, you know, being quiet because I'm afraid that it's going to go against someone else. Um, I had a situation where a, a woman had relatives who would come every summer and they would stay for two weeks and they expected her to do everything, feed them, drive them everywhere. And it just wore her out. So she had a conversation with them and she didn't say don't come. She just said, it's a long time. And I really would love to have you stay if you can come and please come for, you know, maybe a week or five days or something like that. And we can pack a lot of information in there. Well, the relative didn't take it very kindly and decided not to come at all. Goes back to controlling the other person's response and so over the over time the relationship has come back but making that first maybe at the first time you confront someone it's not always going to go so well and one of the reactions that people will have is that they may go back even though they were maybe angry or upset in the beginning they go back and they think about it and then they think about it and i've had more people tell me that Someone will come back maybe a week or a month later and say, you know, you were right. And I appreciate your telling me that. Yeah. Well, how can you be wrong when you're just saying this is what I observed? You can't say that's wrong. I mean, that's, that's what you observe. That's your experience. Exactly. Exactly. So exactly. there is no wrong. It's, it's just they, they, they just don't like your observation. <laughs> so when people are af afraid of speaking up, what is it you think they're afraid of? The, just the reaction? Oh, so many things. Uh, and it depends on the person. They're afraid of looking, you know, looking stupid or looking um, silly, giving out an idea. Take a, take a, a staff meeting where it's, saying, okay, we all want all your ideas. And someone stands up and gives an idea and say, oh, someone else says, oh, we've tried that before. That's not going to work. So you get shot down right away. So why should I speak up if I know that people are going to shoot me down and I'm going to look foolish and nobody's going to think that my idea is very good? Why, why would I want to risk that? Why would you? So what would you do instead? What I tell people is that it take the risk. There are three components to this. There's say it now, which is the right timing, and there's say it right which is the right body language, the right phrasing, the right words. And the other one is the right motive. You've got to stand up and, and come from a place where you're not trying to put anybody down. You're not trying to make people look stupid. Or you're not trying to um, be, make yourself look so important. You have to come from a place where you really want to share this idea because you think it's valuable and it's important and it could be beneficial. So if I, if I stand there and say that, um, with that kind of a motive, then I don't have to worry about what other people think. And I'll tell you one other situation that I had uh, when I was started my consulting business. I had a great idea for a, a program. It was called Me Inc. I thought, wow, that is really great, you know, yourself as a business. And I, I molded over and I wrote it out and I drew pictures about it and everything like that. And then I let it go. 
And about a month later, I was at a, um, a bookstore and I wanted to get a magazine and I saw all the magazines that were on the display. And here was the Time magazine front cover. And guess what it said? The front cover said, Me, Inc. That was my idea. And here it was on the front of Time magazine. Now, that was a great idea, but I didn't do anything with it. I didn't speak up. Think of all the opportunities that are lost, all the great ideas that never are said and never worked on and never come to fruition because somebody is reluctant to speak up. There are people, though, who just are timid. They, that, that's their nature. It's, it's not that they're afraid or oh, maybe it is, but, but I mean, their whole life they've been timid. It, it's part of their personality what do you say to those people who just n- have never spoken up? This is a big change to consider. You don't have to change your personality in order to you know, be more forceful. You can speak very softly and very quietly and very, you know, at very opportune times and maybe not very often. But you know, someone who doesn't speak up much or is very quiet or is very th- thoughtful When they do finally speak up, it makes a huge impression. Think about that. You know, there are some people that are, they will speak up all the time. They don't have any problem with that. You know, those are some of the people that hog the meetings. Yeah, I'm pretty sick of those guys. Yeah, we're sick of those people. But think about this. When you've got a group of people and you know this one person on your team hardly ever says boo anytime. And all of a sudden they put their hand up. And they have some stand up and have something to say. The whole the whole room is going to be silent because once they do stand up, it's got to be really important for that person. They're going to have a huge impact. Yeah, that's a really good point. And what that illustrates, what that kind of says, is that maybe you shouldn't speak up all the time just because you have something to say. That. If you do that, then people don't take you as seriously as when you're very selective. And that maybe, maybe there are times not to speak up. Maybe there are times to just let it go because it's not worth it or that no good will come from it. And I have a story with that. I had a son, uh, when he was a teenager, he had a bad case of acne. And, uh, you know, being the mother, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, he's going to just suffer and go to school and people are going to make fun of him and all that. So I was all worried about it. He was pretty cool about it. He didn't really bother him that much. But I I made an appointment. I dragged him to the dermatologist. So we're in the doctor's office and he's sitting on the the exam table. And the doctor um, asked a question of my son and I chirped up and I answered it. And then the doctor asked him another question and I answered it again. Now, after the third or fourth time, the doctor finally looked, turned around and looked at me and said, Miss Nestor, I think your son can speak for himself. And wow, now he said it now and said it right to me, because there are times when you have to stop talking and you have to let people speak for themselves. You know, kids, we're always rushing in to do everything for them instead of letting them figure things out themselves. And the message you're actually giving when you do that is that I don't think you can handle it. I don't think you're smart enough. I don't think you have what it takes to figure things out. And that can be a huge detriment. So there are times when you need to just, 
you know, stop the helicopter, helicoptering parents, and you can be a helicopter manager too, and being trying to fix everything all the time for everyone else. So there's a time to be silent and let people figure them out for themselves, a huge confidence builder, and let them speak up, let them find their own voice so they can speak up. And it just makes sense, particularly in business, in organizations, you want people to speak up. They might have better ideas or they might see a big problem with your idea. And if everybody's afraid to speak, then that could be a big problem. One of the things that we used to do in meetings is to appoint a devil's advocate. This person, their job during the meeting was to really listen and to come up with opposing points of view. Because if you don't, then you, you don't have anything to bounce your ideas off of. There's a, a quote that says, if two of us always agree, one of us is unnecessary. So managers and leaders can do themselves a great favor, and especially going into this new, this post-COVID workplace, is to make it a place where people feel safe to speak up. They're encouraged to speak up. When you've got people that can find their voice, you're going to have a much more productive and a much different and a much safer and comfortable workplace. Well, I think this is really a valuable discussion because I think everyone has been in that situation where they didn't speak up, they later regretted it, wish they had, what would have happened if they did. And I think this conversation really helps give people permission and and validation for speaking up because it could really do some good. Mary Nestor has been my guest. She's a communications expert, an award-winning speaker, and a business consultant. And the name of her book is Say It Now, Say It Right. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Picture in your mind what a burglar looks like. And if your image is a guy dressed in black, wearing a ski mask, and holding a flashlight... You are way off. A real burglar is more likely to carry a clipboard or a rake and dress like a meter reader or a landscaper. If you don't answer the door, he'll check it anyway, and if it's unlocked, he'll probably walk right in. If it is locked, he'll go look in the window to see if he sees anything valuable. It could be worth breaking a window for. After all, neighbors probably won't react to one loud sound. Alarm systems do deter burglars, but only if they're activated. Most burglars will tell you that a sticker in the window or a sign in the yard saying you have a burglar alarm isn't that convincing. And many are willing to take the risk that even if you do have an alarm, it's probably not on during the day, when most burglaries actually happen. It's key to have blinds and shades drawn on all ground-level windows, including the basement, when you're not at home because it's riskier for a robber to enter into a space that he can't see. And that is something you should know. If you're a regular listener to Something You Should Know, you have heard me ask you many times to tell someone you know about this podcast, recommend it to a friend, and the reason I keep doing that is because it works. It helps us grow our audience, And it's really a great way to show your support for this podcast. So please recommend Something You Should Know to a friend. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.